0: Well, I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 37 through the end of the chapter. Uh, You'll find that starting on page 870 if you have one of the church's Bibles. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. Beloved saints, this is our God's word. It is eternal, it is perfect, and it is life-giving. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside also make make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. For you... Ought to have done without neglecting, sorry, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Uh, this ends the reading of God's word. Let, let us ask God's blessing on our time in it this morning. Great God of truth, merciful Savior, you've told us to offer up our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Such is acceptable and holy to you. It's our spiritual service of worship. But we confess that we struggle to do so. We're too entangled in the affairs and the concerns of this world. We have our minds set on the things below rather than the things above. And so we struggle to follow you as we should. Renew our minds, we pray. Transform them through your word. Teach us To think as you think, to believe as you believe, to love what you love. Do this all as we we listen to and meditate upon your word. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. So, what is your biggest problem? We all have problems. We all have lots of them. Not just one, but many. But what would you consider to be the greatest of your problems? The, the most significant? What is it that keeps you from joy? Uh, from a sense of peace and that sense of perfect contentment? Uh, there are a lot of ways people tend to answer that question. Some would say their biggest problem is finances. Finances. They're constantly concerned about making ends meet. And if they could just be financially secure, then all would be well. So so they spend their lives doing what? Trying to get ahead, trying to protect themselves from from lack and want and vulnerability and, and, and guarding against unseen economic troubles. Others might say that their biggest problem is relationships. The people in their lives, their parents, their spouse, their children, their friends are constantly letting them down and causing them pain. And if they could just surround themselves with, with people who would encourage them and support them, there could be no limit to their potential. And so they, what do they do? They cut off any, any uh, relationship that is costly and they only look for those affirming relationships. And still others might say that their biggest problem is what? Uh, what's going on in society and culture and politics. Uh, they want to do what's right, but, but you know those in charge or, or whoever they might want to blame uh, just, just seem bent on steering the nation in a, in a destructive direction. And if they could just get the collective whole to, to wake up and see what's really important, then our, our nation could be amazing. And so they spend their their time engaged in political activism and and that once meant, you know, you know, protests and and parades, and now it just means spending a lot of time on social media and, and posting the right memes. But maybe it's not one of those three things. Maybe it's something else. There's so many things people might offer as that that one problem if they could just deal with, they'd find peace. But what if your greatest problem isn't your finances or your relationships or society and culture or politics or, or What if your greatest problem is your own heart? What if the greatest threat to your peace isn't something that's around you but something that's inside of you? What then? What hope is there? And that's exactly what Jesus addresses as he meets a Pharisee and a lawyer in our passage. He pushes through, through all the distractions, the, the things that they busy themselves with, the, the things that, that they use uh, to, to make themselves feel important. And he shows them that they've, they've misdiagnosed their greatest problems. And that their solutions are actually making things worse, not better. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to rightly diagnose the problem. And to offer the only remedy that can actually help. This morning as we look at this this rich passage from the end of, of Luke chapter 11, my hope is that we'll see this. Jesus promises that all who surrender their hearts to him will be washed and made clean. He promises that all who surrender their hearts to him will be washed and made clean. They'll find peace and they'll find contentment. That's the great promise of our Savior in our passage. So let's remember where we're at in Luke's Gospel. Uh, The beginning uh, of the Gospel was focused on signs and wonders that Jesus was doing to establish his authority so that they might listen to him when he speaks. Now we are in the section that's focused on his teaching. And last time we talked about about the desire to see signs and wonders, uh, that people wanted to be a part of something big, and and Jesus said that that desire was, was wicked, and that they should instead long to hear God's word and follow it, submit to it, and obey it. And while he's teaching... A Pharisee invites him to dinner. And Jesus accepts. He goes over to his house and he brings his disciples along with him. And we think, so far, so good. But as he gets there, Jesus and his disciples, they don't wash their hands. And the Pharisee is shocked. And he confronts Jesus. And then we need to be careful here. Believe it or not, we can tend to be a little naive sometimes. We read everything not only as Americans, but as 21st century Americans. Believe it or not, those in the Near East 2,000 years ago didn't talk about germs. They didn't have 99% effective uh, hand sanitizer on every shelf. The concern here is not hygiene. It's about ritual cleansing. The Pharisees were leaders in the Jewish community whose focus was on holy living. If you've ever read through Leviticus, you've seen all these ceremonies that are involved in washing and cleansing. Because the Jews were prevented from coming into God's presence if they were ritually unclean. This isn't about germs and dirt, it's about being ritually defiled. And there are all sorts of things that would make Jews ritually unclean. There were, there were monthly cycles, there, were, there was touching something unclean, there was coming in contact with the dead. So if, if, if a loved one or, or something passed away and you had to deal with that, you would be ritually unclean for a while. And so on. In fact, the typical Jew, quite frankly, spent most of his life or her life ritually unclean. And it would be around those important festivals and times and in the calendar that they would go through that process of purification. But the priests were different because where did they work every day? In God's house. And so they had to constantly go through purification ceremonies lest they enter into God's house unclean. The Pharisees were a group that thought Israel's biggest problem was a lack of purity, ritual purity. And so their solution was to say everyone should live like priests, constantly washing, constantly cleansing, constantly going through purification, so that they could live in a state of holiness and purity. It was like a, you know, a priesthood of all believers. <laughs> they were the original ones, the Pharisees, who believed that. Now this wasn't commanded in the law. It was the Pharisees' tradition. It was their practice. This goes back to what we saw a few months ago with, with the new wine and the old wineskins. They were, they were trying to shove extra things into Israel's practices that God hadn't put there. And it was breaking everything. They believed that what God had given to them in the law of Moses was insufficient. And so they added practices and they told everyone else to follow them. And that instinct is alive and well today. There are those who are obsessed with rituals, thinking that that those rituals keep you close to God. For some, that might simply be going to church. For, to others, it, it could be observing uh, special holy days, holidays. Uh, for others, it could be uh, making a, a, a super rigid practice of private devotions or family devotions. It, it could be in reciting prayers or, or keeping sacred relics. And these rituals are seen as ways of maintaining fellowship and peace with God. For the Pharisees, this meant ritually washing your hands before a meal. In fact, the word used in in the original Greek here for wash is not the typical word used uh, for washing. It's actually the word baptize. They didn't baptize their hands. Uh, Baptism is not about the removal of dirt from the flesh, Peter tells us, but but it's about seeking a, a clear conscience before God, about removing guilt and shame. And this Pharisee was offended that Jesus and his disciples were not following this tradition to richly wash before a meal. Now before we get into Jesus' response, let's look at his other interaction in our passage. Uh, the, the lawyer who comes up to Jesus in verse 45, he actually comes to the defense of the Pharisee. Now lawyers in Israel are not what we think of as lawyers. They're also called scribes. Uh, they were experts in the law of Moses. They they knew what Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus said. They were the ones that people would go to if they had questions about the law of Moses and how it applied to their lives. Because the average person might not be able to read, and even if they could, they probably didn't have a scroll. And even if they did, they didn't have the time. They were farmers. They were busy. And so the scribes, the lawyers, they were the ones who who would dedicate time so they could answer people's questions when they arose. And and if the Pharisees uh, thought Israel's biggest problem was ritual purity, the lawyers thought that Israel's biggest problem was a disregard for the commands of God. They saw people uh, and their personal disobedience as a constant impediment to peace with God. So, what was their solution? It was to emphasize obedience. And that meant rules. Lots and lots of rules. And they would they would take a command and they would add six commands to it just to keep you from getting close enough to break in the original command. We know what this looks like today, don't we? Well, drunkenness is wrong. So let's not let anyone have any alcohol, then no one can get drunk. We know that... Uh, Uh, lascivious behavior is wrong, so let's not let anybody dance lest it become lascivious. And on and on, right? Gambling is wrong, so let's not not even play a a game of of cards. On and on the list goes. Lots of things that you can point to in, in order to show how serious you are about God. Not only do I follow God's rules, I follow all these other rules. That's how serious I am. The lawyers would point to all the rules they followed to prove their devotion. And what would they do with anyone else who didn't follow the same rules? They'd judge them. They'd say this is what God's law requires, at least by implication. They built memorials to the prophets, God's spokesmen, to show just how serious they were about the Word of God. Again, something God never commanded. This is what the law experts said was, was implicitly required. This is what you did if you were serious about following God. So what did Jesus think of, of the Pharisee and the lawyer? Did he agree with the Pharisees and, and see ritual impurity as the biggest problem, the greatest problem? Or did he side with the lawyers and and see Israel's failure to study the rules and keep them as the greatest problem? Or did he see both groups as missing something? To the Pharisee, he said that they missed the point entirely. Because they focused on the outer reality, but never looked at the more important inner reality. You see, ritual cleansing was exactly that. Ritual <laughs> It was symbolic of something deeper, something much more important. Ritual cleansing was always a picture of the need for a pure heart. God cares about the inside. God God cares about the heart. They focused... On little things, like, like making sure they gave a tenth of their herbs to the priest. But they failed to concern themselves with things that really mattered to God. Things like, like justice and love. It's not that tithing was wrong, but it pales in comparison to loving God and loving others and serving others. And so Jesus says that that the solution of the Pharisees is, is worse than the problem. By teaching others to focus on the outside, on the ritual, and not the internal reality, they were leaving those who came to them in greater sin than when they started. And then he uses a picture from the law. Because contact with the dead left people unclean, it was important to mark graves lest somebody accidentally walk over an unmarked grave, come in contact with the dead and become unclean, and not know it. Jesus says the Pharisees are like unmarked graves. People come to them for advice and they leave more defiled than when they came, not knowing it. And his verdict with the lawyers was just as severe. These experts in the law were meant to to serve the people and make their lives easier. They had so much going on. The the, the experts in the law were were meant to, to, to ease that burden, give clear answers Those people had a need for someone who could speak into their lives, cut through all the mess, and ease their burden, make it lighter. But instead, they're creating their own confusing maze of commands that no one could possibly keep. Those who came for them felt left feeling more burdened and less hopeful than before they came. These people who had once been delivered from slavery in Egypt were now being enslaved by their own leaders in their own land. So what could make leaders behave like this? What is it that that drove the Pharisees and the lawyers? Jesus tells us, verse 43, For the Pharisees it was prestige. They wanted to be seen as important. They wanted the good seat. They wanted to be greeted when they walked into the marketplace. They wanted the best seats. Everyone thought uh, they were more holy, more special, and closer to God. And if they thought that, then the Pharisees would be respected. They would be treated as if they were special. And so their focus on these rituals... That focus was not for the good of the people. It was really for their own advancement. For the lawyers, it was, it was really an issue of control. They laid heavy burdens on the people and, and they did nothing to help them. Jesus, he didn't lift a finger to help them. They were serving themselves. They acted like they were honoring God and his word, but they were, they were using that word to enslave others. And serve themselves. And so God's word became a weapon. To enslave and subject their fellow countrymen. Rather than free them. And that's why the lawyer points out that he's offended by Jesus' words. He's offended because because Jesus is saying any leader who burdens his people when he should be freeing them, when they're seeking relief and and he's, he's further enslaving them, is honoring himself and not God. And when Jesus refused to apologize, they set to find a way to trap him so they could do something about him. So what is it that does matter? Jesus doesn't leave that question unanswered. He says there's a there's a lot we can learn from ordinary dishes and God's law. To the Pharisees he uses an image of, of dishes. Okay, we're at a meal, we're we're having a meal together. Okay, let me ask you this What's more important to wash the inside of a dish or the outside? When you sit down to dinner, which would you rather have washed? The outside or the part that touches your food? Personally, I'd rather the inside be cleaned. Because focusing on on ritual purity, but not what it represents was like cleaning the outside of the dish and leaving the inside covered with, you know, yesterday's moldy leftovers and piling today's food on top of that. This shouldn't be hard to recognize. What's inside matters more. Jesus is interested in your heart. But isn't that exactly what scares us? What's easier to focus on? The outside or the inside? It's a lot easier to get dressed up than it is to deal with the ugliness in our own hearts. It's easier to focus on rituals than the messiness in here. It's easier to volunteer at church than to bring the lust of your heart before God's throne. It's easier to tell everyone how much time you spend reading your Bible than to admit that you continue to mistreat your family. And it's easier to talk about changing the world than it is to lower yourself and serve the person sitting next to you. If only a holy life was simply a matter of washing your hands and eating the right foods, wouldn't that be easy? But here's the problem. Nothing you ever touch or put in your mouth can make your heart dirtier than it already is. And no amount of washing, no amount of avoiding certain foods can make your heart clean. See, these rituals were meant to expose the problem, not fix it. Neither will an endless and ever-growing list of rules fix it. How does the the law of God begin? You go back to Exodus 20, you go back to the Ten Commandments, we read it every Sunday in the reading of the law. How does the the law of God begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's whole law begins with deliverance from slavery. Slavery. How can any view of his law that enslaves be seen as consistent with it? The lawyers weren't listening to God's law. They were misusing it for their own slavery and for their own uh, glory. God makes it clear in his law that his goal for us is not slavery but freedom. And no matter how many rules you add to God's, you will never purify your heart. Because rule following today doesn't undo rule breaking yesterday. Following your own rules doesn't make up for breaking God's rules. That's not the way to peace. So what is? What is? Look at verse 41. But give as alms, as as your offering, as your sacrifice, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. (laughs) Jesus says, if you want to be clean, if you want to be purified, if you want your guilt and your shame and everything that stains your soul washed, come and bring your heart and lay it before me. You could give all the mint and rue and herbs you want. That's not going to do it. You could give large amounts of money, but it won't buy peace with God. You can wash your hands until they are raw, cracked, and bleeding, and it won't change your heart. If you want a clean heart, which is what we really all want, We need to offer it up. Bring it before the Lord. And He promises He will cleanse it. But here's the catch. To bring it to the Lord, to to surrender it, to offer it to Him, you have to let it go and you have to expose all the evil and filth within it. All those silly little charades we use to try to hide what's really going on inside. Our our lust, our our greed, our our anger, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism towards others. You must look at Jesus and say, my greatest problem is not my finances. It's not my relationships. It's not society and politics and culture. It's my heart, and I can't fix it. Wash me and make me new. See, it's not your hands that need to be washed, it's your heart. And again, that beautiful law of God says, I could have told you that if you just listened. Because what is one of the most common refrains in the law of God? It's this circumcise your heart. Circumcision was supposed to show them of of their need to, to have their sin cut off and removed. It was simply a sign, not the reality. And if, and if all they had was the sign but not the reality, what benefit was that to them? And so now Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. In the Old Testament we had circumcision. So he says, circumcise your heart. Now we have baptism. And he says, so baptize your heart, not your hands. Because that's what needs to be washed. That's what needs to be cleansed. And he says, if you offer it up to him, if you surrender your heart to him, if you surrender yourself to him, he will cleanse your heart. He will make it pure. Take all guilt, all shame, every sin away. Everything that stands as a barrier between peace and contentment with God, he will take away and remove. But how? How, how can you wash away your sin? How can he make you clean and pure? What can wash away my sin? (laughs) Well, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's why he had to die on the cross. Because sin deserves death. Sin is serious business. Nothing that Jesus is saying here is saying sin is not serious. Quite the opposite. He's saying it's so serious that any of your remedies can't take care of it. I'm the only one, he says, who can fix it. And the only way I can fix it, the only way I can wash you, baptize you, is by surrendering myself on the cross. In fact, he would call the cross his baptism. Because that's where he washes us. Because that's where we're made clean. That's where our greatest problem is dealt with. It's not really surprising then, is it, that he didn't just leave us baptism, but he left us the Lord's Supper, a picture of his death, Pictures of his body and his blood, given in death for us, and by itself, it's a ritual. Eating and drinking. But when you see past the ritual, when you when you see what it signifies, what it what it calls you to, then it's something quite different because it calls you uh, in coming to the table to surrender all to Jesus that that you might find refuge in him. And it comes with that promise, that, that pledge that God can't change, that if you do, you will be washed, you will be cleansed, you will be forgiven. That your greatest problem will be solved, answered, and dealt with. Forever. And so let us come. Let us take of this meal together. Let us see past uh, the sign to the reality. Let us lay our lives before Jesus. Let us cling to Him and hold fast to Him. Please join me in prayer. Our merciful Savior, we confess that our greatest problem is not our finances. It is not our relationships. And it is not society. Our greatest problem is our own heart. Deceitful, corrupt, defiled, sinful. We need washing and cleansing. Not with water, but with the very blood of Jesus. And, and so we ask that you would wash us and make us clean. Remove every stain of sin. We surrender our hearts and we offer them as alms on your altar. We, and all we have, are yours. Do with us as we will, we pray. Amen. Amen.